Well, our sermon this morning comes from the book of Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. If you have your Bible, I invite for you to turn there. I think you'll find it profitable to have the Word of God in front of you. If you want to use a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1007. It's 1007. In fact, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love for you to take that Bible in front of you, and that pew rack is our gift to you this morning. So please avail yourself to that, and we will find ourselves... In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is open for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. And Father in heaven, we thank you now for this time in which we can come and set our hearts upon your word. And we do pray that even in doing so, as we'll discuss in a moment, we will be drawing near to you, that you would come and speak to us. I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would echo that prayer. Even now, God, speak to me. Draw near as we draw near to you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The Christian author Donald Whitney writes... One of the saddest experiences of my childhood happened on my 10th birthday. Invitations to celebration were mailed days in advance to eight friends. It was going to be the best birthday ever. They all came to my house right after school. We played football and basketball outside until dark while my dad grilled hot dogs and hamburgers and my mother put the finishing touches on the birthday cake. After we had eaten all the icing and ice cream and most of the cake, It was time for the presents. Honestly, I can't recall even one of the gifts today, he writes, but I do remember the great time I was having with the guys who gave them to me. Since I had no brothers of my own, the best part of the whole event was just being with other boys. Well, the climax of the grand celebration was a gift from me to them. Nothing was too good for my friends. Cost was immaterial. I was going to pay their way to the most exciting event in town, the high school basketball game. I could still see us spilling out of my parents' station wagon with laughter on that cool evening and running up to the gym, standing at the window paying for nine 25-cent tickets and surrounded by my friends. It was one of those simple golden moments in life. The picture in my mind was the perfect ending to a 10-year-old boy's perfect birthday. Four friends on one side and four friends on the other. I would sit in the middle while we munched popcorn and punched each other and cheered our high school heroes. As we went inside, I remember feeling happier than Jimmy Stewart in the closing scenes of It's a Wonderful Life. Well, the golden moment was shattered, he writes. Once in the gym... All my friends scattered, and I never saw them again the rest of the night. There was no thanks for fun, food, or the tickets, not even a happy birthday, but I'm going to go sit with someone else. 
Without a word of gratitude or goodbye, they all left without looking back. So I spent the rest of my 10th birthday in the bleachers by myself, growing old alone. So why do I tell you this story this morning? Well, the same reason that Donald Whitney wrote it in his wonderful book, Spiritual Disciplines of a Christian Life. He said, I tell that story not to gain sympathy, but, but because it reminds me of the way we often treat God in our worship services. Though we come to an event where he is the guest of honor, it is possible to give him a routine gift, sing a few customary songs to him, and then totally neglect him while we focus on others and enjoy the performance in front of us. Like my 10-year-old friends, we may leave without any twins of conscience, without any awareness of our insensitivity, convinced that we have fulfilled an obligation well. Often I think we draw near to God in times like this without actually seeking Him, without desiring Him and pursuing Him. That is especially tragic in light of what we considered last time, the access in which we now have to God, which was withheld under the Old Covenant. And we considered this last week in verse 19, as we saw, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, and now we can come to Him with great confidence. In fact, that confidence that we now have, He has died to secure, for He says we come by the blood of Jesus. You, you, the writer of Hebrews is telling us we have a whole new relationship with God, a, a whole new covenant with Him. And what's interesting to me as we read on in this text is that the covenant which we now enjoy with Him it's not simply a covenant that you get to enjoy and a covenant that I get to enjoy, but it is a covenant that we together get to enjoy. It is not simply for you and for me, but it is in many ways for us. In fact, I explained to you last week that you could take this whole paragraph, verses 19 through 25, and divide it like this. You, we have two possessions. We see that there in verse 19, since we have, and again in verse 21, since we have. We consider those possessions last week. We have access to God and the advocate over the house of God. With that, those two possessions lead to three privileges or exhortations. They all begin with the words, let us, verse 22. Let us draw near, verse 23. Let us hold fast, in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another. And so we have these wonderful privileges, but what I want you to see there in those three privileges we have, they're not yours individually and they're not mine individually, but they are ours congregationally. They're ours communally. They're ours corporately. This is something that we don't do by ourselves simply, but this is something that we do with one another. This is why in this seven-week series on the church, we've entitled it not New Covenant Persons, but a New Covenant People, that God is creating a people. And I would like this morning to consider how this covenant that we entered into with God by the blood of Jesus that we thought about last week impacts us as a church. How does it impact us within the community of God's people? My hope as we do is that you will join me in praying, even, even now, even as I preach, that God would help us to become a church that God says His church is supposed to be. Not a church that tradition tells us to be, not a church that your past tells us to be, not a, a, a church that the church growth experts tell us we're supposed to be, but a church that God's Word explains we are to be. And that God would help us to become such. And so let's consider these three privileges, these three exhortations we have as God's people under this new covenant. We begin by considering that He exhorts us to draw near to God in faith. Let us draw near to God in faith. Note verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And therefore, since we have access to God, verse 19, we then apply that access by drawing near to God. Now, we considered much of this last week. Just in considering the confidence we have before God, we, by implications, thought about what does it mean to draw near to Him. In fact, I appreciate even this time in our service this morning. Uh, Josh and I think Chris even mentioned where it's time to draw near to Him. And that's exactly what God tells us to do. We are to draw near to Him. And so I would simply like to remind you, as I did last week, that God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save you, not that you may go your own way, but He has saved you in order to draw you to Himself. He has given you forgiveness and fellowship. He has given you a pardon and His presence. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ Jesus died once for sin, the just for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God. That is the goal of your salvation, that you might be brought to God. God has done the unimaginable thing, paid the incalculable price, that you might come to Him. Not that He needs you, but that you need Him. You're made for Him. You're made to find the delight and satisfaction and peace in Him. Jesus Christ once stood upon this earth and says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger again. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. He is the one that satisfies our hunger and our thirst. Our search for joy and peace and rest is found in Christ. We are to therefore draw near to Him. But He tells us here, that I think, at at least by my count, four conditions as we draw near to Him. We'll consider them briefly. You see, first of all, he says that we come to God with a sincere desire. You notice verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart. Some translations say a sincere heart. This is, I think, an exhortation not to fake it, not to play the role of a hypocrite, right? It's easy to fake other people out, but not God. He wants you to come to Him with a longing for Him, a desire for Him. He wants you to want Him. He does not want you to go through the motions. I think this is important for us to understand because it is easy to go through the motions, even as a church, not just you individually, but us as a church. It's easy today to be a church without depending upon God, right? Because why do we need to fast and pray when we have marketing and websites and ministry training? Why why do we need to cry out to Him for help? When we have all these tools that are laid at our feet. And it would be very easy for us to just gather up these tools and say, this is how we're going to be a church. We're going to do this thing and do this thing. And and this is how we'll grow. And this is how we'll minister with absolutely no desire for God. I pray that that will be true for us. We are to draw to Him with a sincere desire for Him. A longing for Him that would bring us to Him. We come also with uh, to God in full assurance. As we read on in verse 22, he says, we draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And we considered this at length last time. Let me just remind you that we draw near to him not because of your merit, your goodness, your righteousness. You don't come to God because you've done good things or because you avoided bad things. You come to him. You have full assurance before Him because of what Christ has done. It is in faith, as He says. It is Faith is looking away from your sin 
and it is looking to Christ and His covering that He has placed upon you, that you may walk into God's presence covered in His blood. And by the way, you shall, Christian, live forever with Him upon a new earth, and you, you and I, um, as hard as it is to imagine, shall live for a thousand years, a billion years, and on, and we won't sin at all. Like a billion years of sinless Stephen. And it's just going to be extraordinary and wonderful. And, and you, I think, may get tempted to think, well, you know, I've been at this for a billion years, and I haven't even thought about sin, and I'm doing pretty well right now. I wonder if I'm here because of my merit, because I haven't sinned. And along comes Jesus. And what shall you see upon the palms of Jesus? That you shall see the imprint of your ransom price. You shall see the, the work that He has done in order to bring you here. Your full assurance today and forevermore will always be in Christ, in His work. We have full assurance of faith. We come to Him, thirdly, with our hearts cleaned. See that verse 22? He says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That reference to sprinkling is a reference to the Old Covenant. When they entered into the Old Covenant with God there at Mount Sinai, they gathered the people together and a bunch of priests stood in front of them and they made some sacrifice and they took the blood and they begin to spray it all over the people. They begin to sprinkle it upon them. Aren't you glad we're not doing that today? Right? Amen? Right? We're no, no one's getting sprayed with blood today. Praise the Lord. Now, this is how they used to do it. This is how they gathered together. And they, this was a sign of the covering of sin. But, but we're, we're, our hearts are being sprinkled. That's what he says. Our hearts are being sprinkled clean. It's being washed away that he is taking uh, our, our guilty conscience away. And of course, your conscience will accuse you. It will. You'll, you'll commit some sin and, and you will hear that voice. Like, what are you doing here drawing near to God? Do you not know what you just said? You don't know the thoughts you had last night. You know what you did, right? And you will hear that voice, won't you? Your conscience will come up and strike you down and it will utter all sorts of things in your ear. And you are therefore to look back in God's Word and say, I'm not here because I'm clean myself. I'm here because my heart's been sprinkled clean. And I hate my sin and I despise it. And God help me to have victory over it. But I do not draw near to God because I don't have sin. So shut your mouth, conscience. I have been sprinkled clean by Christ's blood. That's what He has done in our hearts. He has washed us pure. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, who is it to uh, bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was seated at the right hand of the Father, who is interceding for us. We come to Him with a hearts cleaned. And lastly, you see, we come to Him with our bodies washed. You see that at the end of verse 22. And our bodies washed with pure water. Most understand this to be a reference to baptism or what baptism symbolizes. And baptism conveys a lot of symbols. But one of the symbols it conveys is that our sins have been washed away. That He is washing our our sins off of us. And so we come to Him knowing that our sins are are washed. I don't know if you noticed there, though, that this, this washing of your body or this sprinkling of your heart to be clean is not something you did. This is something that's been done to you. This is the passive tense. So these actions have been done to us. God did this for you. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I think it's important for you to understand that what Christians believe is not that we have a set of morality by which we make ourselves right with God. That would be every other world religion who will give you a set of rules Rituals and say, do these things, and you make yourself right with God. If you do them good enough, well enough, enough of them, then you become right with God. 
Christianity stands in isolation and says, no, that's not in at all. We've, in fact, we've all messed up. We've all broken the rules. We have all sinned. But there is one who has obeyed in our place. And if we trust in him, he says, I will forgive you and I will call you, invite you to draw near to God. I love what one has said. The voice that spells forgiveness will say, you may go. You have been let off the penalty which your sins deserve. But the verdict, which means acceptance, will say, you may come. You are welcome to all my love and presence. What a wonderful God we have. Welcome to Him. Welcome to draw near. Of course, that leads to the question, how do we do it? So if I'm invited to draw near in this way, how do I come to Him? I mean, what practical, what does that look like on Monday afternoon? Well, I think there's probably hundreds of ways to draw near to Him. We do it through prayer. We do it, I think, when we read God's Word and we meditate on it. I hope, I hope it's happening right now. I hope it's already happened to you today. Even as we uh, praise God in song, I think God especially manifest himself in the midst of God's people when they come and praise him, as opposed to when we do in isolation. At least he does more in my life. I'll tell you, I feel closer to God when I'm singing next to you than when I'm singing by myself. That may have something to do with the quality of the singing, um, but I feel that God comes and manifests himself in his presence. I think he's there in the Lord's Supper. I think he's, I think he's there when we hear his word as it's proclaimed and preached rather than simply read, though we must read it and meditate on it. I think God comes in special and wonderful ways when we gather together and hear the word of God trumpeted and heralded above us. I think we draw near to God when we are in prayer. I, I, I think together, I think we draw, I'm going to draw near to God in elders meeting on Thursday night. We're going to spend about four hours together. And God is always manifesting himself in our presence as we pray and and we seek after him. We draw near to God together. This is, I think, what Jesus meant, or at least the Bible meant, when we see Jesus in Revelation walking among the seven golden lampstands, which are the local churches. And Jesus says, when I'm there, I'm present among the churches. And when the churches gather together, I come and manifest myself in a unique and wonderful way. And I praise the Lord that he does this. I think we do this together. Of course, we don't only do it together. Sometimes we do it by ourselves. You draw near to God by yourself, right? And I'm sure there's wonderful, unique ways that you can do that. Um, For me, God manifests himself, you know, when I'm backpacking. Maybe for you, it's a, a, a beach or a sunset or a black cup of coffee. Right? And God comes and sh- there in a special and unique way. I'll tell you, when I get up in the morning and it's quiet, which is a rare thing in my home, and you have to get up early to be quiet, and it, it's sometimes before the sun comes up. Some of you guys do this and go outside maybe at, at dawn and you have your coffee and maybe you're barefoot and you're outside. I, I become immediately aware of the presence of God. I, I was like, hello, Father, good morning. I'm happy to be with you today. Right? Uh, do, you, do you have things like that? Do you, do you find ways in which... Do you drink coffee? I don't know if that's what you need, but there, there's a way to draw near to Him. And then find those ways and come to Him. Find the ways that dole you to His presence and avoid those things. He invites you to come to Him. But here, as you see, He invites us to do it together. We often do this together. And I praise to Lord for that. Martin Luther once said, At home in my own house there is no warmth or vigor in me. But when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart. I think the church is a wonderful place where our Lord manifests himself. Well, look, and let's consider this second uh, exhortation that we're given, that we are to hold fast together in hope. Let us hold fast together in hope. Verse 23. He says, And let us hold fast the confession of our hope 
without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, that word confession there in verse 23 is not... Usually we think, well, that, that's something we do when we've done something wrong, right? We confess sin. That's not what he's referring to here. Rather, this confession is, is a reference to what we believe about God. So we might say this is your body of doctrine. This is your theology. This is the truth that you hold to be true about God. And you see, we're not confessing our sin. You notice what we're confessing? We're confessing our hope. What is it that we hope in? What is it that we place our, our hope on? And he tells us that we need to hold fast to that, to hold fast to the confession of your hope. Now, this is something the author of Hebrews exhorts throughout this book. Let me just show you a couple times. If you look back in Hebrews chapter 3, we see a a similar phrase. No, it's not exactly the same, but in in Hebrews 3 and verse 6, it says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Note note this phrase as we read on in verse 6. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We need to hold fast our confidence and our hope, he says. And then notice if you jump down to verse 14, he says, we share in Christ if we indeed, if indeed we hold, that same phrase, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So we got to hold on to this, he says. Or chapter 4, verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And so he is telling us we need to hold on. We need to hold on to what we believe. We need to hold on. Don't let your confession slip away. Don't let your confidence slip away. In fact, he tells us how it is that we can hold on to this confession of our hope. We do so because God is faithful. You know that in verse 23? Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. Right, so how do we know that one day that God's just not going to say, you know, I'm done with this. This is, this is too much. There's too much sin going on here. And, uh, you know, I said I was going to remember your sins no more, but, but you know, I, no more. I'm going to start remembering them. I'm going to start judging you for them. How do we know God doesn't change his mind? Well, the Bible tells us right here. He's faithful to his promises. In fact, in Hebrews 6 and verse 18, it says it is impossible for God to lie. Isn't that interesting? God could do everything. Evidently not. In fact, there are some things you can do that God can't do. Namely, lie. Right? Right? God can't do it. He couldn't do it if he tr- wanted to. He doesn't want to. I don't think he can. That's maybe another thing he can't do. Want to lie. He, his, it's totally out of his nature. He has no uh, ability to actually lie. And therefore, we have confidence in our confidence. We have confidence that God's not going to turn his back upon us. That he's faithful to his promises. Is that true for you? Have you seen God to be faithful to you? And the promises that he has made, you, made to you. I think that would be perhaps a wonderful conversation to have over lunch today. Maybe before we, we turn on the football game or whatever we're going to do, we, we go around the table and say, hey, what promises has God kept for you? How has God kept his promises in your life? We might share that with one another. I wonder if that would help us to hold on to this confession. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, um, the amazing thing is that God has made promises to you too. It's extraordinary. Well, the Bible tells us that you're not in a relationship with God. It only comes through Jesus. But God has, has said to those who reject him that he will not hold you accountable to your sin if you will place your faith in Jesus. I mean, isn't that extraordinary? I mean, just think about it. You may not believe that to be true. So let's just say, I don't believe that promise is accurate. But just think about it in the abstract. If that were true, how extraordinary would that be? 
Is that not worth you searching after to find out, is this true? Is it true there is a holy God who says, I will wash away your sins if you will simply trust in the work of Christ your substitute. That's His promise to you. I believe that to be holy truth as He has made throughout Scripture. We can hold fast because He is faithful. But He also tells us why we need to hold fast. I don't know if you notice this little phrase in verse 23. We hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, if we're never tempted to waver, why would he tell us to do so without wavering? I think there's that temptation there. We're tempted to hold our confession loosely. And I think these, these individuals he's writing to were tempted. A lot of people think that's the whole reason the book of Hebrews was ever written. It was written to Jewish converts to Christianity who, in light of the persecution they were now facing because they were Christians, were tempted to go back to Judaism. And they were tempted to not hold this confession firmly. They were tempted to waver in it. And, and he wrote that, that they might not give in to this temptation. But of course, that's not their temptation alone. This is a temptation that people face throughout this world. People are tempted to let go of Christ and what they believe in Christ. As we as a, as a church become involved in seeing the gospel make it to Kurdistan, I'm becoming more aware of what God is doing in, in that region. In fact, I became aware of a brother a Kurdish believer who fled in the middle of the night from ISIS this week. He left 57 fattened calves behind. I don't understand. It's worth $75,000. He had to leave it and run. They were butchered. Um, and he'll, he'll never get them back. He ran into a missionary that we have become aware of. And the first words to the missionary after he expressed this was the words of Paul, all things are considered rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He knows the Bible well. But there, what temptation that must be. I mean, how easy it would just be convert, or at least pretend to convert, to, to let go of what you hold it. In fact, on Wednesday night in our prayer meeting, we were talking for a moment, is there any place in this world today where if you're a Christ follower, and all that that means, you're welcomed? I mean, is there any culture that exists today where someone can say, I follow Jesus and all that that brings, and the culture says, welcome, we're glad you're here. We want you to express your beliefs however you want. I don't know if there is. I, we couldn't, someone, I, in fact, I had this conversation in a, a bunch of guys I had on Thursday. Someone mentioned Guatemala. I have no idea. Maybe. But there is, if you're Muslim, there's places that will welcome you. If you're Hindu, there's places that will welcome you. If they're a Buddhist, there's places that will welcome you. I wonder if, if there's places that will welcome Christ. It seems to me that's becoming more difficult, in other words, to follow Jesus. And yet we have this great hope. And the hope that even though the challenges abound for us, Christ is returning. I think ultimately that's the hope that we have, that Christ will return and right every wrong. In fact, once you looked in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, the Bible says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to get up off His throne, and He is going to come back for His people. I don't know what challenges you face today, brothers and sisters. I don't know what burdens you are carrying, but this I know. 
Christ intercedes for us today as we have been reminded of. He is at God's right hand and He is looking upon you and telling the Father, He's mine, she's mine, work here, I love Him, they belong to me. This very moment, He is interceding at the right hand of God Almighty. But there is coming a day when He is going to stand up from His throne and come back to get you. He is returning again. In fact, He has promised us, and if I go and prepare a place for you, surely I will come again to receive you unto Myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's our hope. That's our hope. I don't know what's going on in your life, but you have an anchor. You have a shelter and a refuge to flee. My God is returning for me. Hold on. Hold on to that in the midst of trial, in the midst of trouble. But here's the thing. You don't have to do it alone. You don't have to hold on alone. Let us, he says, hold on without wavering. Now, you know people that have left the faith, don't you? You know people that one day said, I'm in, I love Jesus, and something happened, they, they walked the other way. Now, let, me, let me ask you. Think, maybe you could think of someone in your mind. How many people did you know who walked away from the faith were in the midst of a vibrant, robust church relationships? How many people you know just walked away had deep Christian fellowship with people who were pouring into their lives? Now, you may know a few, but everyone that I know didn't have that. They just slowly backed away and slowly backed away slowly distance themselves from God's people and they found it more and more difficult to hold on. More and more difficult to stop wavering. And off they went. I mean, what, what, if, what if we could create a church where it became safe? Say, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure about this. I have struggled believing this. We could talk about our doubts. Or a church that says, you know, guys, I'm really struggling in this area of my life. And no one knows this, but I, I just can't seem to get over this. And what if, what if, what if we embrace that with, with grace and love and support, not awkward silence and go our own way? And what, what, what power would be in that as we help each other to hold on? I think God intends His church to strengthen each other's faith, to empower one another. We hold this confession together. Well, lastly, let us consider this, this last exhortation. He says to us in verse 24, let us help our community to love. Look here. And, and let us, he says, verse 24, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now let's be careful here because he's not saying let us consider how to be loving and to do good works. That would be good thing to do. That would be a right thing to do. Consider how to be good and pursue after God. But he's telling us not to consider how we do it, but he's telling us to consider how to stimulate others to become more loving and to become more righteous, to help people in this area. And, and if we're to consider how we can help other people do this, the implication is you need other people to consider how they can help you to do this, that we need this in our life. And so the question is, okay, how do we form these relationships where we're considering each other in order to um, produce this righteousness? Well, I think we need to know each other intimately. We need, we need to know each other intimately. In fact, that word there in verse 24, he says, consider. He uses that in chapter 3. He, he tells us here in chapter 3 and verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who have, sh- 
share in a heavenly calling? Consider Jesus. Right? Think about Jesus, focus on Jesus, occupy your mind with Jesus. And then we get here to chapter 10 and verse 24, and he is saying to us, consider one another. Think about others, focus on others, occupy your mind with what's going on in other people's lives. And I know it's not very clear in your translation because it's awkward to put in English, but it's literally consider one another towards the stirring up of love and good deeds. Think about each other, focus on each other in order to help them to become more loving and help them to become more righteous. I think about the times when I um, do pastoral counseling and and often I take notes in the midst of that and I'm writing down things as I'm listening. And the reason I'm doing that is, is I want to be able to consider what's going on in this person's life. I just don't want to shoot off on the hip and just whatever pops into my mind. I want to think about, okay, in light of what's going on here, how can this person um, gain victory over this addiction or find forgiveness for this person and and be able to actually begin to consider what's going on in order to encourage them, to stir them up. I think we should do this as a community, right? Not take notes, of course. That would be weird, right? But that we would actually begin to think about each other and consider one another's lives, that we would, we would occupy our minds with each other. I wonder, do you do this? Is, it, is this a practice that you have, thinking about each other? Uh, maybe, maybe some of the ladies here, uh, maybe I think this probably comes easier to women. Maybe some of your women are saying, of course we do. What are you talking about? You know, move on. It's time to go on. And the men are here like, whoa, wait a second. Slow down. Wait, think about other people. Is that what? I, I'm a, I was not raised to this. This is difficult for me. I was raised for performance. We... I'm a car and we get A's and that's, that, was, that was the thing that we did. We didn't think about it, other people. We did our own business. But he's saying, no, you need to begin to think about others. Consider each other's. To do what? Well, he says, consider how to stir up. That's an interesting word. Maybe your translation says spur on. In fact, that word stir up is, is almost always in the Bible used negatively. It's often used to uh, be translated as confront, provoke, irritate, right? And of course, some people don't know, need to consider each other in order to know how to irritate them, right? right? Some, I mean, you know whole churches that are good at this, right? And they're, but, but you notice what? Irritate them to what? Irritate them to love. Ir- irritate them to righteousness, to, to good deeds. Know what buttons to push in each other's that life that they may follow Christ more intimately. I know one pastor who was preaching on this text, he uh, told the story of Odysseus who was, uh, after his war, was sailing home. And he had a pass by the island of the Sirens. And he knew that whoever, male mariner, listens to the Sirens goes mad with desire. Their singing is irresistible. And he, he immediately will steer the boat towards the Sirens and, and run into the ground upon the rocks and shipwreck the boat and everyone dies. And so Odysseus says, you know, I'd really like to listen to these ladies. Um, but, but we all can't listen to them. So he puts wax in all the mariner's ears and he ties himself to the pole there, the mast, right? And he says, okay, guys, you want to know how to be a friend to me? Well, in a moment, I'm going to go crazy and I'm going to start shouting and saying all sorts of things. I need you to ignore me. I need you to give me what I need, not what I want. We have to do that as Christians sometimes, don't we? Give each other what we need not always what we want. Spur each other on even when it hurts. The proverb writer says, wounds from a friend can be trusted. Right? And we, need to, we need to have this ministry. Of course, in order to do this, we need to let people into our lives. Right? The trouble is we, we want to hide. 
We want, we want to conceal ourselves. We want to hide the challenges. We have this, this disease called finitis in the church. Right? How are you doing? I'm fine. Right? What's going on? I'm fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. And that's, that's it. We don't let anybody in. I'm fine. It's good. It's good. We're all good. Right? And, and so, many, so many people play on Christianity like it's a hobby. I, I think Christianity makes a really lame hobby. Um, I, I, it would be exhausting if I had to dress up every, it's like Halloween every week. You dress up and you put your mask on and you pretend like everything's okay and you go home and you take your mask off and, and then you be real again. No, the Bible says we need to actually let people in in order that they might consider us, that, that they might know what's going on in our life. And the amazing thing is that we play this game and the reality, the, the whole core of Christianity is we're all messed up. I mean, that's the, the foundation of our faith. We are all messed up. We have all sinned. We all need grace and forgiveness. We need someone to die for us in our place. None of us is perfect. We all understand that. That's the heart of what we believe. And so then why, why pretend that I'm perfect? Listen, I struggle with sin. I do. I, I, I struggle with the flesh in my life. And I, I imagine you do too. And so I, I don't think it's helpful to pretend that we don't. Rather, I think it's helpful to have people in my life where they could speak into that and pull me alongside and sit me down and say, Hey, brother, I, I love you, but I, I notice this is going on in your life. I'm concerned for you here. Can we, can we talk about that? That's not fun, by the way. Um, it's never fun to hear those things. I mean, root canal's not fun. Do you need it sometimes? Right? We, we need to have this in our lives. But in, in order to have this, we need to know each other. Right? This is confronting people not because you're hurt by them. This is confronting people because you love them, which I think is much more rare and perhaps much more loving. In fact, I would suggest to you that it's, it's somewhat cowardly to see someone in danger and simply hope for the best. I don't find that loving at all. I know that they're doing this and this probably is going to end badly, but you know, I'm just going to let them go. I don't want to have that difficult conversation with them. It's not loving if my kids are playing catch with a knife to say, you know, I hope that works out. It's probably not, but, you know, who am I to say? Right? It's loving to say, listen, a knife in the head hurts. Right? Here's a spoon. Right? <laughs> it's, it's not loving to say, you know, this is this, this does, it's not going in a good direction, but, you know, maybe it's going to turn out. May, maybe it will be okay. Maybe the, the relationship will make it. Right? Let's just hope for the best. That's not love. That's coward. That's cowardly. We need to have people that we know that have deep relationships with us, that, that know what's going on in our life, that they could come and be able to speak into this. I wonder if you have any of those relationships. I mean, it's not something we do in the foyer after service, okay? So let's not try that there. This is a time when we get together with people that we have developed love with. Of course, we don't only just stir each other up and confront one another. If you jump down to verse 25, he says, but encouraging one another, right? We need to support one another. We need to carry their burdens. So they go through trials. We need to be there for them. Struggle and temptations. We need to help them face that. We need both. We need, we need the, the confrontation out of love and we need the encouragement and the support. If we are going to, according to verse 24, abound in love and good works. We need to know each other intimately. Well, then the question is, how do we then form these relationships where we know each other intimately to do this work? Well, he tells us we need to meet each other regularly. Notice verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together. 
He says that in order to build these deep, intimate relationships, can't hide. You need to engage with each other. You need to meet with each other. You need to open up with each other. Some people have said that religion is private. You've heard this before. Listen, religion is private. Well, some religions may be, but Christianity is not one of them. It is intensely personal. Don't misunderstand me. But it is never intended to be your own private relationship with God. It is your personal relationship with Him. But you are to share that with other people as we live in community with one another. We're to meet with each other and share life with each other. Notice, by the way, this ministry can't happen in this meeting. This is a mutual ministry. This is me encouraging you, you encouraging me. This is me thinking about what's going on in your life and being able to stir you up and you doing the same for me. It's not happening right now. Now, this is important. We're not getting rid of this. We need this. The Word of God needs to be trumpeted and heralded and proclaimed. And you need that. And and I need that. But we need more than that. And I think you know that to be true. For instance, let's just say one, one Sunday, uh, things are just going great. Like God's Spirit is here. And, and Jesus is in the background nodding. And, and, and there's tongues of fire falling down on us. And, and everything is just powerful in your life. And you're thinking, I'm in. You know, I, I, I'm getting rid of this. And I'm going this way. And I'm getting rid of all the shallowness and trifling in my life and I'm gonna I'm following Christ with everything I got I'm going after Jesus how long does that last does that make it home with you does that make it to after dinner you still have that conviction on Wednesday I imagine not as you need other people to hold you accountable to what God is doing in your life You need those relationships. We're a body. You cut off a body. You cut off a finger. You throw it down. It does not keep functioning. It has to be attached to the body. We need each other. You isolate yourself from Christian relationships uh, through meeting together. You're going to cut yourself off from the means of grace in which God wants to produce righteousness in your life. Now, of course, many of us know this. Many of us have deep, wonderful relationships within the church community. Um, in fact, if you're, if you're for my non-Christian guest here, you may, you may not know this, but many of us gathered here hours ago to meet. Like some people are showing up at eight to get ready, and at nine to teach children and to study God's word. And and you're, I'm sure you're already aware that this service is longer than perhaps you even thought it would be, right? When we're, I mean, we're we're all gathered here together, and and some are going to go out to lunch together this afternoon, and others will be at each other's house for dinner time. And I, I think by last count, there are like four men's breakfasts that happen throughout this week, and the women gather in the morning and the evening to study God's word, and still the teens gather tonight, and still another group gathers on Wednesday night to pray and to study God's Word, and there'll be people in people's homes on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday this week, and the, the elders, we're going to gather together for four hours on Thursday because they won't let me go home, and we just, we just go, 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 all this time we're spending, what's crazy about it is we actually like it. We, it's not something we have to do, it's something we want to do. We want to share life with each other. We want to live with each other. It's important. That's why he says don't neglect it. I find it interesting. Verse 25, he puts in the negative. He doesn't say meet together. He says, don't neglect meeting together. Don't, don't leave this to chance. Don't hope you run into a sister to encourage her. Don't neglect to meet one another, but encourage each other. In fact, he even warns of the danger. You see that? As is the habit of some. Evident, evidently, there's a habit for some Christians to stop meeting together. We're not, we're not going to pursue these relationships with one another. Um, and... Not meeting together, evidently, is habit for me. I, I wonder which group you're in, Christian. Are you in the group that 
that seeks to form these relationships to encourage one another, stir one another up, or have you formed the habit of, of not meeting? He warns us of that. In fact, you notice at the very end of verse 25, he, he encourages us to do this urgently. You see, we're to encourage each other urgently, as he says here at the end, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Right? I think what he's saying, we're not playing around with this. This is important. Um, and he says it grows in importance as time goes on. As the day of Christ comes near, it becomes more important. You know why? Well, well because it's going to be more and more difficult to become a Christian, to follow Christ. There's going to be times of testing and challenge. And God's telling you need to meet each other in order to provoke each other as things become more difficult. Jesus would tell us in Matthew 24 about the end. Because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold. Isn't that interesting? Because wickedness, most men's love will grow cold. That ought to be sobering. Because I don't think... I mean, he says most men... That, that ought to shake you a little bit. Because no one reads that and says, well, I'm probably one of those men. No, no one says, I'm one of those men. But yet it's going to happen. And so the, he says, meet each other to stir up love because the threat is growing. In fact, it's interesting to me that, that love, the first and greatest commandment and the second great commandment and all the laws fulfilled in love and the primary fruit of the Spirit is love. And by this, all men will know you are my uh, uh, disciples by how you love one another. This all-important reality of love, according to God, is ordained by Him to either grow or shrivel based upon your willingness to meet with other believers in Christ and receive this ministry and extend it to one another. I hope you hear this. The, in the last days, love is growing cold. You know, I know how to triumph over that coldness. Don't neglect meeting with each other. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we foster these relationships? Well, there are, there are hundreds of ways, I think. We do it in men's groups and women's groups and teens groups. And many people meet one-on-one throughout the week. I certainly do. And I meet one-on-three. And we have these relationships in which we form. And there are many ways in which you can do this. But one way is through uh, a ministry that we have been, been developing here at Hamilton Baptist Church called Community Groups. We currently have three community groups which meet primarily to do this work in each other's lives. I want to tell you about community groups as we end. But you need to hear this. So the banner that flies over this three-minute discussion of community groups is, is, no, is you're not a bad Christian if you're not in a community group. So I, I want you to hear this. It's not legalism. This is an opportunity. Okay? And, and community groups are designed to learn each other's lives and to share with each other and to love and to know what buttons to push in each other's life, to pray for one another and to minister along each other. And I, I found them in my life to be one of the greatest things for my soul is that I could form those relationships with other people and they could get to know me and they could challenge me and encourage me. It's good for me. It's good for my family. It's good for my neighbors. It's good uh, for, for Jesus, I think, in his kingdom. Something that the church has been doing since the beginning of the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 46, and day by day attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Big meetings in the temple courts, small meetings in their homes. We gather in each other's homes. Uh, One, it's biblical. Um, Two, I think it breaks down barriers. People are are more open in each other's living rooms. It's a little more, less formal. And we gather there to do a couple things. One, it's not a new Bible study. It's simply a time to discuss the text that was preached. So those community groups that meet this week, are all they're going to do is talk about this passage in which we're talking about not to relearn it, but to figure out how to apply it. 
So if this is the word of God proclaimed, what difference does that make in my life? And how can you help me understand that? And how can I help you? And so we try to bridge what we learn to how we live as we wrestle with each other and apply these truths to our life. It's in the context of these groups that you experience fellowship and you use your gifts in one another's lives. You encourage one another and admonish one another and equip one another. And then I think their best, best model, at least in my experience, is that when the discussion is done and the time of fellowship is done, you break up based upon gender and you check in on each other's life. So what's going on in your life? How's this? We've been praying for you. And then you spend some time in prayer for one another. And I don't know if you notice in, in, in the bulletin, there's a little uh, description of community groups. Pastor Josh mentioned that. And I would love for you to pray about maybe that you would like to get involved in one of these ministries. We're starting two more up. I would like to start more than that. Uh, we'll see what happens. And you could sign up in the Welcome Center. You could sign up online. And when you sign up, by the way, all you are saying is send me more information. All I'm going to do is just send you a, a three-page document that explains these uh, realities more fully. But, but I know that this, by the way, if, if you meet once a week or some groups meet three times a month, that's hard, isn't it? And that's going to require rearranging your schedule. It's going to require sacrifice. It might be awkward. You got kids. What am I going to do with my kids? Right? And there's all these questions. That, and I understand it, it will not be easy. But I don't think Christianity was ever designed to be easy. And I think it comes down to two priorities. I mean, God has ordained evidently that good deeds and love and Christ-likeness are empowered through these relationships within the church. You can have these relationships, again, outside of this ministry model. But this is a way in which you can become more like Christ. Why would you not want to pursue that with everything you have and vibrancy and discipline and be willing to sacrifice and pay a cost in order for that ministry to abound in your life? We, we need each other. If we are going to become Christ-like, we need each other. If we are going to hold on to our confession, we need each other. If we are going to draw near to God. And so may we begin even more so to pursue one another. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to hear from you this morning. We thank you for your church. We thank you that you designed our faith not to be this isolated adventure, this, this journey in solitude, but we are to come together within the local church and, and develop these relationships in order that we might minister into one another's life. I thank you that you have designed it that we need one another. And so help us to embrace that. Help us to seek after that as we seek after Christ. We pray for our friends here that do not know Jesus that have yet to give their life to Him, or perhaps they are seeking after you, God. Maybe they are wondering about you. And we pray that you would open their heart to the truth of what Christ has done, that He has died and that He has risen and that He offers salvation to any who would trust in Him. I pray that you would work in their life and draw them to you even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.